Proverbs chapter number 22 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 17. Uh, Solomon is writing. Of course, he wrote most of these Proverbs. He penned them down not just for men in general, but particularly for his son Rehoboam. And he says this, Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips, that thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that sinned unto thee. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you and I thank you for your truth tonight. Thank you that the Word of God is truth, that it's absolute truth, and Lord, that it's impeccable truth. And I pray that you would help me tonight, Lord, that my words would uh, have clarity, that you give wisdom to the things that are said this evening. I pray, Father, that we'd say it exactly how it is and how it ought to be. And Father, that we would be very careful uh, as we preach your Word tonight to represent you in, uh, in detail uh, and in boldness. And pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we leave this place tonight to have absorbed these things and for them to have provided foundation for our hearts and minds as we go out into the world around us. Lord, I love you and I thank you for your word. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this topic, the certainty of the words of truth. Now, there's two essential things I want to preach to you about surrounding this topic. One is the Word of God. The Word of God is the source and is the pattern for all truth. And I'm going to prove that to you before we even get out of our introduction. But then I also want to preach to you on the idea of truth itself. Now, there are things that are true that the Word of God does not speak on. For instance, the pews are green, the, uh, the uh, microphone is black, the hymnal is red. But all of these things, the fact that truth can be spoken and known about them, stems from the fact that this world was created with the Word of God as its foundation. The Word of God is truth. Now, there are a lot of things in life that are true, but the Word of God is in its very substance. It is independently and intrinsically truth. And I think that's an important distinction to make for two reasons. One, because we're going to talk a lot about things that are true tonight and what it means for something to be true. But two, because you and I, as believers in the Word of God, as saved, redeemed people, we need to understand just what a precious thing we have in our Bible. Amen? And uh, we need to have the right perspective on it. So, uh, Solomon pins down these words. The Holy Ghost, of course, wrote them, but Solomon pinned them. And when Solomon pinned them down, he pinned them with his son in mind. Over and over again in the book of Proverbs, he will say things about uh, his son, that his son ought to give uh, heed and give wisdom to the things that he's saying, that he ought to listen to what he's telling him. And uh, Even when he comes down to the 31st chapter, he's talking about a virtuous woman. Uh, he got that information, of course, from his mother Bathsheba, but he's passing it down to, uh, to uh, his son, Rehoboam, because Solomon has made a mess of his life by not pursuing after virtuous uh, woman, but instead letting his heart be turned unto other gods. So the distinct audience of the book of Proverbs is everybody in a sense, but he is in a more particular way writing to his son. One of the uh, recurring themes in the book of Proverbs is the absolute nature, the concrete nature, the static nature, the permanence of the truth of the Word of God. 
One of the greatest things we can do for our young people is teach them that truth is absolute and teach them where they can learn what truth is. Uh, Teach them both the source of truth and how they can determine and understand what is true because they'll need both of those things as they navigate this world. Uh, It used to be there's time you didn't even have to talk about these things because we all understood that truth was absolute. Uh, But we, after uh, 80 or 100 years of moral relativism being pushed in our uh, schools and in our uh, culture and our society, we have children now that are walking around and don't even know if they're the same gender that they were when they were born. Now listen, I I ain't interested in getting up here and riding on a hobby horse tonight, uh, but I will say this, uh, that is indicative of a break in the psyche of our culture that people can't even grasp the most fundamental and elementary pieces and points of truth. It it, it tells us that our culture has a sickness of the mind and of the heart, that we disbelieve the notion of an objective world around us. And this is, by the way, not by accident. We're going to talk about uh, some of what led to that. But uh, Solomon begins by pointing to some things about truth that before Rehoboam ever even uh, endeavors on this journey of understanding what is truth and what is true, that he needs to understand. And he gives these to us in verses 17, 18, and 19. I want you to notice them with me. Verse number 17, he speaks about the prerequisites of truth. He says, "...bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge." So he says, listen, son, before you're ever going to know what is true and before you're ever going to know the truth, you have to first do three things. Number one, you have to humble yourself. In other words, we have to admit that we are not the masters of what is true. Now, again, you're going to sit there and think in the message, not preacher, why are you telling me this? I already know this. But I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but we have a culture and society today that believes if they just uh, identify as something, if they just say that something is so, if they just get enough people to agree that something is so, then somehow it will change what that thing is. And that's false. That's not true. Uh, you see, the, the truth is we're not here to change the truth because the truth can't be changed. Truth is truth. Instead, we ought to be here to perceive and learn the truth. And to do that, we have to first humble ourselves and admit that we are not the masters of truth. We may be the stewards of truth, but we're not the masters of truth. There is only one master of truth. There is only one that whenever the world needed truth and true things injected into it, it could be spoken into the world by His Word, and that is the God of glory. He is the only one superior to truth itself. He is the only one that could materially change what is true, what is in existence. So, he says you've got to humble yourself, but then number two, you've got to expose yourself to truth. He says in verse 17, you've got to hear the words of the wise. In other words, we have to come face to face with truth. Uh, This is something that you're seeing on college campuses all around our country right now, is there's an endeavor uh, to provide an environment where young people are never going to have to be faced with what is true and with the truth. And uh, there is a sort of a uniformity of philosophy and ideology in young people. I mean, listen, uh, there was a time when you, when you talked about college students needing their blankie and their pacifier, you were joking. But now you're not anymore. I mean, some of these kids have got to have therapy dogs because somebody came and spoke at their college that had a different point of view than them. 
Now, it's easy to laugh at that, and it's easy to dismiss that, and there is a lot of it that's nonsense. I, I understand that there's a lot of it where you've got professors that are just wanting to uh, signal to society and the world, but the sad thing is these kids are actually growing up in that. They don't realize that these professors are using them. They think that's how the world works, and they're going to get out of college one day and go work a job and find out that that's not how the world works. We have to be willing to be exposed to truth. We have to listen to truth. Truth is not always a comfortable thing. That's true for all of us. Uh, there are, listen, there are things I could say this morning, uh, and, and, and whether we were talking on the philosophical standpoint, on the political standpoint, on the cultural standpoint, there are things that if I just merely stood up here and made statements about them, that you'd find that your flesh and your pride would begin to boil and roil and rear up. Uh, I could say things that would make you uncomfortable that are true, and you could do the same thing for me. Uh, we have to uh, deliberately humble ourselves, but then we have to expose ourselves to truth. We have to hear the words of wisdom, and then we have to apply them. Look again at verse 17. It says, And apply thine heart unto my knowledge. Uh, we have to be willing to embrace what we know is true and live by it. Now, I'm going to say a word about what truth is here before we really get to preaching, but I just want to lay that as a foundation, that truth doesn't do you any good when it's in the abstract. It must be applied. This is something that so many Christian young people miss growing up. They sit under preaching uh, week after week, year after year. They hear truth, but they always assume it's for somebody else or some other time, and they never apply it to their lives. And then they turn about 18, 19, 20 years old, and their life is in pieces, and they can't figure out why. Well, listen, they heard the truth, but they didn't apply the truth. And uh, listen, this Bible does not change our lives by osmosis doesn't change us just by being in the vicinity and proximity of it. It's got to be applied. So there are some prerequisites of truth. Verse 18, he speaks about the pleasantness of truth. He says, For it is a pleasant thing, if thou keep them within thee, they shall withal be fitted in thy lips. You know what that means? That means that truth it may be uncomfortable when we are first faced with it, but if we'll submit ourselves to it, if we'll humble ourselves unto it, if we'll embrace it, if we'll apply it, we'll find that it is a joyful and pleasant thing to be living a life according to the truth of the Word of God. It's an enjoyable thing. Now, not everybody's going to like it, not everybody's going to support it, but we'll find that only in the Word of God will we find peace of heart and peace of mind. There's a pleasantness of truth. And then look at verse 19. He says, This is why he wrote them, that thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. We see the purpose of truth. And this is something you really need to get. The purpose of truth is that mankind may know God in an intimate and real and personal way. So truth is not just there so that we can have a vast library of facts. Uh, truth as it relates to the Word of God, this Bible is not just here so that we can know something about God. This Bible is here so that we can know God. And uh, when we talk about what is true, and what I mean when I speak of truth, I'm speaking of the Word of God. When I mean what is true, I mean things that are peripheral to the Word of God, but are still nonetheless true. Even when we start talk about true things, observing the world around us. Uh, the psalmist understood this. He said that the heavens declare the, uh, thy handiwork, and the firmaments give God praise. In other words, uh, the ability of a human being to observe, to look up into the sky and observe something's existence was there that they might understand and know there's a God that flung those stars into existence. Now, that's not the be-all, end-all. Creation is not uh, the, uh, the consummate way that God has spoken to humanity. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. 
But it, it should make us understand that even observing the tangible static world around us, the purpose of it is to draw mankind unto God, unto the Creator. And once we have been drawn towards God, we can take the Word of God and we can learn who He is. We can know His name. We can know what He did for us. Truth is not just there to puff us up. Truth is there not just so that we can say we are right. Truth is there, meaning the Word of God and uh, beyond just the Word of God, trueness and true things are there so that we might place our trust in the Lord and so that we might know Him in a personal way. So He gives us some points concerning truth in the first three verses that we read. And then I want you to notice three main thoughts tonight, and I'll go ahead and give them to you before we even get into the preaching. In verse 20, He speaks about the perfect integrity of God's Word. In verse 21, the first part of it, he speaks about the personal importance of God's Word. And then at the end of verse 21, he speaks about the public influence of God's Word. Now remember, when Solomon writes this in verse number 20, he says, "...have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and in knowledge?" He's speaking about the Word of God. Now how do we know that? Well, because the book of Proverbs is in the Word of God. I don't know how much uh, Solomon understood about the very nature of what he was writing. But we can look backwards and see that the statement he makes, he's making about the truth of Scripture. Now, before we go any further, well, in fact, I'll say it while I'm preaching. I want to give you three qualities about the integrity of the Word of God. What do we have when we talk about Scripture? Now, when I'm talking about Scripture, I'm talking about the 66 books of the Word of God. I'm talking about a distinct body of writing, a distinct body of truth. And when we talk about the Word of God, we might say three things important about it. Number one, we see that Solomon points to the fact that God's Word is fully perfect. Uh, He says this, that the things he has written down are excellent things. Now, the term excellent means something is superior and superlative. It excels all other things. And let me say to you tonight that the Word of God is excellent. What I mean by that is it is superior to any other piece of written literature. It is superior to any other body of information. There may be things in this world that are true, but here we have the source of truth itself. The world is static and concrete and permanent. And when we say permanent, we don't mean it's going to be there forever, but we mean uh, that it is static, it is immovable in a sense. Uh, The laws of physics, the tangible world around us. The reason it is a fixed entity is because God spoke it into existence. So that this is the very source of all creation, and it is the source of all truth, and uh, the permanence of the world bears testimony to the permanence of God's Word. Uh, the world is, uh, is what it is because God's Word is true, because His Word is the foundation. Now, before we move on with this, let me just say this. When I say the Word of God, I mean the King James Bible. And I don't say that with a spirit of ugliness, I, but, I, but it's important that we uh, demark out what we mean when we say that. You see, it don't do anybody any good to say we have the Word of God if we can't point to what the Word of God is. For instance, if you were sick and dying and someone said, hey, there's a doctor in the world, that wouldn't help you. If they said that doctor is in this world somewhere, that wouldn't help you. You'd need to know his name. You'd need to know his address. You'd need to know a place you could go. Otherwise, just understanding that there's this abstract, hypothetical doctor in the world, that wouldn't help you. If you were starving to death and somebody came to you and said, hey, there's food somewhere, that wouldn't help you a bit. There might be food somewhere. 
That food might be good, but it wouldn't mean anything to you unless they could tell you where that food is and what that food is. See, the fact is, it doesn't help anybody just to say the Word of God exists. And that is typically the line that you'll get from most people today. Well, I believe in the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? Uh, What are you talking about when you say the Word of God? And people say, well, you know, the Word of God is in a lot of different places. Well, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help a lost sinner. Amen? I need a book that I can hold in my hand that I can read. And I know that the words that I'm reading are the very words of God. Or else it doesn't help me at all. And the reality is this. The Bible says that God would preserve His Word. He promised to in Psalms chapter number 12. Now, preservation, if it doesn't preserve, is not preservation at all. We can say that something is preserved, but if the nature or quality of it is changed, then it has not, in truth, been preserved. So the question is not, uh, what is preservation, what's not preservation? The real question is, do we believe God preserved His Word? If you believe God preserved His Word, but we don't know where it's at, or if you believe that God preserved His Word, but what we have today is not perfect, then you don't believe in preservation. One old preacher put it this way. He said, if I can, uh, the, you know, some green beans, and in six months I open them up, and they got mold, and they uh, have uh, corrupted, and they've shriveled up, and they've begun to rot, I didn't preserve them. Amen? And so if God's preservation cannot withstand so that today we have a Bible we can hold in our hands and say, this is the very Word and words of God, then God did not preserve His Word at all. So the question is, do we believe in preservation or don't we believe in preservation? I believe in preservation. And, and I'm not just trying to push your amen button. I'm trying to get you to understand this is something that a lot of people, they say they believe, but then when you begin to ask them, well, which Bible is perfect? Well, no Bibles are perfect. Well, if no Bibles are perfect, then you don't believe in preservation. And they'll say, well, I believe when God gave His Word, it was perfect. Okay, you believe in inspiration. That's good. And then you'll say, well, where can we go to find the perfect words of God? And they'll say, well, you know, that's a tough question. No, it's not a tough question. It's just something people don't want to commit to. And when you say, well, we don't really know, then you don't believe in preservation. Uh, Now, uh, people say, well, preacher, what about other languages and this or that? I'm going to make this very clear to you. I'm not going to say God couldn't give a perfect Bible in another language. God is fully capable to do that. But I will say this, I know that He has given us a perfect Bible in the English language. I can't speak to the integrity of other uh, languages. I struggle with English. Somebody say amen to that. But I I know that God has given us a perfect Bible in English. Now, before you get mad and say, why would God do I don't know, take that up with God. Before you say, well, doesn't God love the other... Yeah, God loves everybody. I don't know why there's not a, a perfect Bible in, uh, you know, Swedish. Maybe there is. I have no idea. But I believe and know that there is a perfect Bible in English, and that Bible is the King James Bible. Now, uh, there's people that want to say, well, preacher, what about this version and that version and this version? Here's something very simple, okay? Things that are different are not the same. Which means you have to choose. Now, if you want to say that you believe the other versions are the Word of God, then that at least can be intellectually honest. You can say, I believe the ESV is the Word of God and I reject the King James Bible. That is at least intellectually honest. You cannot say, I believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God and I also believe the NIV and the NASB and the ESV and whatever uh, variants of letters that you want to give is also the Word of God. You can't say that because it is nonsensical. Because these things are different. They're different. So when I speak about the Word of God, I speak about the King James Bible. 
And that's what I mean distinctly and specifically. And we can sit and talk for hours about what God did when He gave us this Bible, but I don't want there to be any confusion. Because I'll be honest with you, in a lot of circles today, there's a lot of confusion about that, because no one will actually say it. They'll talk about the Word of God, they'll talk about Scripture, they'll talk about truth, and all those labels have value, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't set it in the framework and context of what you're talking about. I'm talking about the King James Bible. I'm not talking about Mr. Schofield's notes. I'm not talking about concordances. But I'm talking about the words that are the Word of God that this Bible contains. I believe that this is truth. I believe it is absolute. I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, everything is what it ought to be. Nothing's anything it shouldn't be. I believe it's exactly what God intended it to be. And I think we need to be clear when we say that. Now, again, I, I, I'm not with an ugly spirit. I, I'm, you know, hey, listen, I, I'm a fundamentalist, but I ain't mad about it. Somebody say amen to that. I really, I mean, we shouldn't have an ugly spirit about it. But we do need to speak in concrete terms, or else it just doesn't mean anything. A lot of the fussing and fighting that's done today in society and culture is people fussing about things that don't even mean anything. And I don't mean they're not important. I mean they literally don't mean anything. There's a lot of buzzwords, there's a lot of terminology that's used, but none of those things actually mean anything. Everybody's talking about the assault weapons thing right now. And, uh, you know, I've got my opinions about it, but can I just say this? Uh, you can't do anything about anything until you're even talking about the same thing. The term assault weapon doesn't even have a definition. You've got to define something before you can even talk about it, Right? I, I, I mean, if, if I was to say to you that, uh, you know, we're going to uh, ban, I don't know what it would be. I heard somebody talking the other day about this thing. They were talking about a full semi-automatic rifle. I thought, a full semi-automatic rifle? It's all right. Think about it a minute. That thing will come by slow freight, all right? A full semi-automatic rifle. We're not even using words that mean anything anymore. So, it does sound good, Sam. They'll ban them somehow, but... But I, I'm saying, and, and listen, this isn't about guns. This is about words matter. And we have to have a working definition. We've all thrown out our dictionaries and we just yell nonsense at each other. We wonder why we can't figure anything out. So terminology matters. So when I speak about the Word of God, I'm speaking about the King James Bible. And uh, Solomon says that the Word of God are excellent things. They are superior. They are superlative. Uh, some of the greatest quote-unquote theologians in history were lost men, and I say the term greatest very lightly. They thought they were. Uh, throughout history were, were uh, men that were not believers. They were lost, but they studied the Word of God from an academic perspective. And they had an academic perspective of the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God is not a literary work. It is a divine work. Now, its literature is far superior to any literature you'll find anywhere else, but that is not in essence what it is. It is a divine work. It is the Word and message of God. It is superior and superlative to anything else. If you come to this Bible and read it like you'd read one of your novels uh, that you might pick up somewhere, you've missed it. This Bible is superior to any other thing that's ever been pinned down. And we need to approach it as something that is excellent something that excels all other things, something that's worthy of our respect, something that's worthy of our devotion, something that's worthy of our attention. I, I jotted these verses down. I want to share them with you because it just said it better than I could ever dream to. In Psalms 19, David is talking about the Word of God, and he gives us seven statements about it. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. David says, when I look at the truth of God's Word, I see something that excels far and above any other body of written truth that exists. I'm saying this. If I was to take a piece of paper out and I was to write down, the pews in Walridge Baptist Church are green, and I was to hand that to you, that would be true. I'm saying this, that in a fundamental way, what's written in this Bible is superior and excellent truth above the truth that I could give you. Do you know why? Because the very fact that I can make an objective statement concerning the color of the pews in this church is because this world is framed on the Word of God. Were it not framed on the Word of God, the world would not be static. It would not be fixed. We could not make objective statements about it. Yeah, and I'm going to go a step further. I wouldn't be walking around and you wouldn't be walking around if God had never used His Word to create this world in the first place. I mean, in a substantive way, the Word of God is fully perfect in a way that no other body of writing or work is. It is absolutely excellent in all things. Now, I'm going to make a couple more statements. Number one, God's Word is factually perfect. Not only is it fully perfect, it is factually perfect. Uh, Solomon says, I've written unto you excellent things in counsels and in knowledge. Knowledge speaks of the information of wisdom. It speaks of the nuts and bolts of what truth is. Again, when I said that the pews are green, some of y'all is colorblind, don't know what I'm talking about, but when I said the pews are green, that is a piece of knowledge, right? Uh, that piece of knowledge can be wielded in a myriad of different ways, but that is a piece of knowledge. It is a piece of, of something that is true. And Solomon says that the Word of God is excellent in its facts, in its knowledge. There is nothing in the Word of God that is inaccurate or mistaken or wrong. Nothing. Everything in the Bible is perfectly, completely true. It doesn't need to be adjusted or tweaked or changed. I was talking to someone on Friday, and we were talking about the the perfect nature of the Word of God. You'll hear people say this all the time. Young people, you need to understand. You'll hear people say this. It's not true. They're lying to you. They may not be trying to hurt you by saying this, but oftentimes they're parroting something that someone else said. They've never investigated it themselves. You'll hear people say things like, there are errors in the King James Bible. That's not true. There's a lot of reasons it's not true, but the main reason is because it's not true. <laughs> but but let, let, me give, let me give you a simple... Let me give you a simple evidence of that, okay? How often are people trying to viciously attack the Word of God? If there were any true legitimate errors or contradictions in the Word of God, do you not think there'd be somebody out there that would plaster that on billboards from here to Australia? Do you not think that atheists, any time there was a debate about the Word of God, they wouldn't debate, they'd just say, hey, here's a problem with your Bible. It's not true. It's not inerrant. And yet for over 400 years, the King James Bible has stood up to the scrutiny. Listen, empires have worn to a nub their hammers on the anvil of the King James Bible. Uh, atheist after atheist, infidel after infidel, has sought to discredit and destroy the, the witness and character and testimony of the Word of God. And they have all come up short. The King James Bible is still here, and they are gone. It is factually perfect and correct in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And listen, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the time to go through every single fact in the Word of God and prove it to you, but I challenge you to read it 
not just as some sort of abstract, poetic, metaphoric book, but as a literal piece of truth. And you'll find that it is factually accurate. Every time that science rolls over in bed, it's finding out something that confirms the truth of the Word of God. Every time it turns around. So the Word of God is factually perfect. This is a scriptural truth. Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 35, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. In Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus answered him, speaking of Satan, saying, It it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That tells me two things. That tells me, I know I'm getting back on, on uh, on the old trail, but let me just say this. That tells me this. When the Bible uses the term every word of God, that teaches us two things. One, it teaches us we have every word of God. Because it couldn't say every word of God and mean it unless we have every word of God. It also means this, that every word of God is attainable and apprehensible and perceptible to us. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, that means this. There must be a place I can go that has every word of God, that doesn't have the words of other people, but only has the word of God. Otherwise, I would always be wondering which were the words of men and which were the words of God. I know this seems elementary, but I'm sorry, we're going to have to go back to elementary to straighten out a lot of the nonsense that's in this world today. Because we've messed with language, we've stripped words of their definitions, people are saying the same thing while saying the complete opposite things, and some people are saying the complete opposite things while saying the same things, and I'm just, uh, we live in the twilight zone, and we've got to be specific about these things. I believe that every word of God is pure. It is factually perfect. Not just good, not just helpful, but perfect in every single way. Then let me say number three, that the Word of God is philosophically perfect. Solomon says that the Word of God is excellent, not just in knowledge, but in counsels. What does that mean? That means in the wisdom and paths that the Word of God lays out for you, it is excellent. That means that God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom. God's way is better than man's way. Again, I know this seems simplistic, but we live in a world today that says that this book is outdated. I don't believe this book is outdated. I believe it is not only timeless, I believe it's timely. Uh, And I believe were it not, it wouldn't have existed. And it wouldn't have persisted. And it wouldn't have uh, stuck around in society and culture. I believe that God's way is the right way. I believe it is the correct way. Now, we're going to hit on some of these things a little heavier here in just a moment. But we're laying a foundation here, okay? Uh, I believe that, that when God, what God says about raising our kids is correct. And when the world contradicts what God says about raising our children, the world is wrong, God is right. I believe what the world says about how we ought to live and interact with the world around us, uh, what He says about it is right. And if the world says something contrary to that, then the world's wrong, God's right. Now, this is an important point to make because if we don't get this in our heads, we'll constantly live in this abstract, uh, you know, sort of a middle-of-the-swamp quagmire of what is right and what is wrong, and we don't really know and we can't really know. That's not true. You can know what's right. You can know what's wrong because God has told us both of those things. And if we'll read the Word of God, we can learn what's right, we can learn what's wrong, not just pertaining to facts, but philosophically speaking, we can learn the right path for our feet, the right way for our family, the right direction for our life. And if the world speaks something contrary to it, 
doesn't matter how many experts they have. doesn't matter how many people clap and say, oh, that's wonderful and oh, that's good. doesn't matter how much of society is going in that direction. If they're going contrary to the Word of God, I'm here to tell you, to, listen, I may just be a simple preacher. And I am not an educated man and I, I'm not a sharp person. Somebody say amen to that. But I, will, I believe tonight that God's Word is right. Even when everyone disagrees with it, I believe it's right. And I stand on that. And you need to stand on it as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and as a Bible believer. If you're not standing on that, then you're not a Bible believer. You may be a Christian, you may be saved, but to be a Bible believer, we must believe the Bible and stand upon it. So the Word of God is philosophically correct. God's wisdom, God's ways are always right. doesn't matter what the world says about them. doesn't matter how culture and society changes. It's always right. I want you to notice a couple things that Solomon says in verse 21. He says that he's written these things that he might make thee know. Now, he's talking to his son Rehoboam. He says that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth. So there's a few things we can understand from what he says. He says to his son, Rehoboam, I want you to understand what's true. I want you to understand what truth means. And I want you to understand you can have confidence in it. Now, there's a few things we can draw from that. Number one, we learn this, that truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. Now, this seems simplistic, but modern culture suggests and believes and preaches and and proclaims that truth is relative. Now, what those two terms mean, uh, relative means this. Well, truth might be one thing to you, but truth is another thing to me. What we say when we say truth is absolute is we say that truth is truth. And it's the same for you as it is for me. There's nothing we can do to change that truth. All we can do is observe and obey that truth and acknowledge that truth. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. He says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. What does he mean when he says we can do nothing against the truth? What Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter what we say about the truth, the truth is still the truth. We cannot detract from it. We cannot take away from it. All we can do is agree with it. We can only do things for the truth, but we can't in actuality do anything against the truth. Now, I want you to understand the whole world is singing together in chorus right now that God is dead, that truth is relative, that morality is is useless, that we have no concept of what's true and what's right. The whole world is joining together in that mantra and in that motto. But it's not true. And they'll teach you that all things are relative. And they won't say it that way. They'll say things like this. Well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. Well, I don't know why I'm so different than you. Seems like if it's good for you, it ought to be good for me. People say, well, maybe that's right for you, but it's not right for me. I don't understand why we're so different. If it's right for you, then it's right for me. Because there is no right for you and right for me. There's no your truth and my truth. There is the truth. Truth is an absolute thing. It doesn't matter if you say the sun uh, is, uh, is blue. It doesn't change it. It doesn't matter if you say the grass is blue. It doesn't change it. It doesn't matter if you say that uh, the sky is, uh, is green. It doesn't change it doesn't matter if you say that this, uh, this table here does not really exist. I'm telling you, so I've sat in. I never really took philosophy because I, I, I had enough of it, amen, that I didn't need to. But I sat in on some philosophy classes, and I, I literally I heard, I heard uh, philosophy teachers say things like this. Well, how do you know that you're not just a brain in a jar somewhere? 
and that the whole world is just a, a figment of your imagination. Uh, I don't believe that for a myriad of reasons. One, every day as I get older, when I get up out of bed, I'm reminded I'm not just a brain in a jar. But two, because I, I don't believe that is how the world operates. We'll say a word about what that is here in, in just a moment. That uh, Basically what that is is existentialism and, and the idea that there, there is really no tangible reality. It's just whatever we make it to be. I reject that. Uh, it, and, and beyond that, it doesn't matter whether I reject it or not. It's false. It's not true. So we need to understand that first out. Truth is absolute. doesn't matter what you say about the truth or what I say about the truth. Truth is truth. The Word of God is absolute truth in every way, shape, fashion, and form. It is the source. It is the germ from which all truisms in life have come. But it is uh, not just uh, the, the seed and the source of all truth. It is also the scope of all truth. And everything in life outside of the Word of God that is true has gotten its truth from the Word of God. We need to understand that truth is absolute. Number two, truth is attainable. What do you mean, preacher? I mean this. We can know the truth. We can know the truth. In fact, Christ said, and Miss Sue uh, quoted it tonight, the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We can know what truth is. Listen to what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. Uh, the Bible says, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven? Bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Now, God is speaking distinctly about the commandment that He gave in the Old Testament law to the children of Israel. But it tells us this, that truth is something that is not abstract and is not relative, but is something absolute and is something that we can grab hold of and we can learn and we can know and we can stand upon. I'm telling you, I'm no prophet. But I can look down the road far enough to see that this is just become going to... It's just now starting to become a fracturing point in culture. We're just now not knowing what bathrooms to go into. We're just now not, not uh, uh, willing to acknowledge uh, what is truth and what is fact. It's a sickness. It's a sickness. It is a moral sickness. It is a spiritual sickness. It infects every side and every avenue regardless of political affiliation, regardless of perspective of life. I'm just telling you, you can see it everywhere. And we as Bible believers, we need to grab hold of the truth of the Word of God and not move from there. We ought not move to the right. We ought not move to the left. We ought not move to the front. We ought not move to the back. We ought to stand right on the solid truth of the Word of God because we can know what is true. We can know what is right. The truth can be an offensive thing. Paul said to the church at Galatia, Am I therefore become your enemies because I tell you the truth? If you stand on truth, there will be people that don't like it. The reason is because oftentimes they have either situated their life in accordance with false things, or they have aligned themselves with people that are situated with false things, and it's going to cost them something to observe and absorb the truth. And so they'll get offended, they'll get angry at you. But you need to understand that truth is something we can know, it is something we can stand upon. The ultimate source of it is the truth of the Word of God. This is where we find truth. Uh, But even beyond, again, the Word of God, just peripheral matters of what is true in life are coming under attack in the day that we live in. And we ought not be ashamed. Hey, listen, God made me a man when I was born. Actually, He made me that before I was born. Nobody can tell me otherwise. 
If a person is born a man, they will stay a man for the rest of their lives. If a person is born a woman, they will stay a woman for the rest of their lives. You are going to be expected in the coming years to play along with the facade that that person has chosen to perpetrate on their lives, to pretend as though they are something that they are not. You as a Bible believer should resist that and should be unwilling to play into that facade. Not just because it's unhealthy for them, and it is unhealthy for them. Suicide rate amongst... uh, They like to use the term transgender. I don't even like to use the term transgender because I feel like I'm playing their game. But uh, the suicide rate is about 40-something percent. 40-something percent. All those people that say we're being compassionate and loving them by playing into their fantasy are wrong. We're We're not. Uh, we're, we're, we're engaging with and enabling their sickness. We shouldn't do it. But even beyond that, even if, hey, listen, even if, it, if it, it gave them the ability to fly, if we were willing to go along with their facade, we shouldn't be willing to do it because it's false and it's a lie. We shouldn't be ugly about it. We shouldn't be unkind about it. But we should be willing and bold to stand upon truth. And we should not move from it. The truth is attainable. We can know what truth is. And the Word of God teaches us that. And then let me say this, that the truth is advantageous. So there's a few different tacks we can take about this. We could say, well, there is no such thing as truth. Some people believe that. We could say, well, there is such thing as truth, but we can't really know what truth is. Some people take that avenue. And then there's some that say, yes, truth is real. Yes, we can know what it is. But what is the point in it after all? It really doesn't matter. You can have your truth, I can have my truth, and they'll tell you that you are a rude, hateful person if you try to intrude on the fantasy of another person with truth. If you try to say, no, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, You were born a man, you'll always be a man. They say you're hateful, you're mean, and you're rude. Uh, They'll say you're cruel and you're unkind. If you say, hey, listen, in our country, uh, an unborn child is a child. God help us when this has to even be something that's discussed. An unborn child is a child. You know that. I know that. The mother knows that. Planned Parenthood knows that. They know the child is a child. It is lunacy to believe that that child being in the womb or out of the womb would change the personhood of that child. And people want to say, well, you know, it's not whether it's in the womb or... or what is, what's supposed to be the metric? Indulge me, for please, for just a moment. What's supposed to be the metric? Is it value? It, you see, that's one of the things that they'll say. They'll say, well, uh, it's an inconvenience for the mother and we shouldn't infringe upon her rights. So convenience conveys personhood. So anybody that's inconvenient to you, you ought to be able to kill. Men, just go ahead. I mean, you're, you ain't even going to last the night. Amen? No, we know that can't be true. Sometimes they'll say sentience. That's one of the things that a lot of times uh, uh, pro-deaf people like to say is sentience. They'll say, well, that child is just a clump of cells. It's not sentient. Okay, what about a person that's in a coma? They are not sentient. Do we have the right to kill every person that's in a coma? No, of course not. Of course we don't. Uh, They'll say things like, well, what about in the cases of rape and incest, which, by the way, is like a hundredth of a percentage point of all, uh, of, of all abortions. They're not saying that because they really believe that. They're saying that because if they can get you to accept that that's okay, then they can try to say, well, see, you don't value life in the first place, so it doesn't matter anyway. You say, preacher, what should we do? Well, we shouldn't murder children. 
So, preacher, what if there's been a case of rape or incest? Well, we shouldn't murder children. I'm against murdering children. We ought to kill the rapist. But we shouldn't kill the child. It's amazing to me. You see, the pro-death crowd, it's not that they're against capital punishment. It's just they don't want to murder the rapist. They want to murder the child. They want to sentence the child to death. I'm against that. Does this make you uncomfortable? It shouldn't, because it's true. I've not said anything the least bit controversial up here. We should be willing to stand on that truth. They'll say, well, uh, you know, what about the cases of, of rape and incest? Okay, does that mean if you're the victim of rape or incest, I have the right to kill you? Of course not. This shouldn't be something we have to talk about. This shouldn't be something we have to debate about. I'm saying that our world has spiraled off of its track. And it's because they've disconnected themselves from truth, from an objective uh, reality. Truth is advantageous. It's personally advantageous. This is what Solomon is driving at. He's saying it'll help you to know and believe in truth. Not only the truth of the Word of God, but the existence of truth. And we learn what truth is from the truth of the Word of God. I wrote a couple things down. Number one, truth anchors us. Most people in this room probably won't know what the name Friedrich Nietzsche is. Maybe a few of you will. Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the 19th century philosopher, was a champion of what we call existential nihilism. Now, existential nihilism is basically the belief that life has no meaning and that all truth is relative and subjective. Most modern-day progressive thought, uh, especially in the realm of psychology uh, and philosophy, stems from Nietzsche's existential nihilism. The idea that all things are abstract, that nothing's absolute, that it just kind of is whatever you think it is. Again, this is where a lot of this bathroom and gender nonsense is coming from, is that you can just identify as whatever you want to identify as because there is no absolute truth, because life has no intrinsic value or meaning, and truth is just a facade. Truth is just a facade. This is what Nietzsche believed. By the way, uh, Nietzsche was uh, the favorite philosopher of Adolf Hitler. This is the reason that Adolf Hitler uh, embraced eugenics, was a lot of the reason. Uh, And the reason that he murdered six million Jews was because of Frederick Nietzsche's writings. Because life has no intrinsic meaning. Uh, We're all just a bunch of animals in the first place. See, eugenics is based in nihilism. In the belief that life has no meaning and life has no value. You wonder how people can murder unborn children because they don't believe life has value. They believe their life has value, but they don't believe life has value. Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, what about if somebody has made that mistake? Well, hey, God's ready to forgive them. God loves them. We all understand that. We all know that. I've never met a single Christian that would say, God hates a lady that has an abortion and will never forgive her and save her. Nobody's ever said that. They'd be an idiot to say that. So that's not what's in dispute. What's in dispute in society today is whether it's right or not to kill unborn children. I believe it's wrong, and uh, I know it's wrong. It doesn't matter what I believe about it. It is wrong because God says it's wrong. But all that's birthed out of nihilism, the belief that life just has no meaning. It's just all relative. It's all just whatever you think. It does not matter uh, because life is not static. It's not concrete, and truth is not absolute. And you'll hear often secular philosophers quote Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was the one that coined the phrase, God is dead. He's the one that pinned down the parable of the uh, madman with the lantern that runs around and tells everybody that they've killed God and that God is dead. And that's what Nietzsche believed. I wonder what ever happened to Nietzsche. Well, yeah, if he didn't repent and get saved, he is in hell. 
But I just mean in his life. I wonder whatever happened to Nietzsche. One day, by the way, Nietzsche lived in the 19th century in the late 1800s. One day, Nietzsche, while witnessing a man whip a horse, suffered a mental breakdown, had to be institutionalized. I, I, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to venture to, to speculate as to why that brought on a mental breakdown. And you know what I believe? Because he believed that nothing had value, and it probably bothered him to see that horse be whipped. And if life has no meaning, and if we're all just clumps of cells, and if there's no good and if there's no bad, why did it bother him to see that horse being whipped? Isn't it interesting, by the way, that the pro-death crowd will worship their pets while murdering their children? The reason is they're, they're trying to grab hold of something concrete, and they're trying to find an outlet for their guilt and for their emotions and for their care. And it can't be children because... Uh, they're willing to kill children. One day, while witnessing a man whip a horse, Nietzsche suffered a mental breakdown and had to be institutionalized. He spent the last year of his life in an insane asylum where he would lie catatonic for weeks at a time. He would only speak occasionally when he would set up in bed and burst forth in mad recitations of Scripture passages that his Christian mother had taught him when he was a boy. He died on August 25, 1900, at the age of 55. This is what happens when a man unmoors himself from absolute truth and objective reality. This is what happens when a man casts off the anchors of absolute truth. Nietzsche spent his life waging war on truth, and truth won. Truth won. At the end of his life, his psyche fractured and fragmented into a thousand pieces, and the wind carried it away. And the only thing that was left was the little bits and nuggets of truth that had been injected into his life by his Christian mother. We can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Nietzsche died a broken and destroyed man because he threw off the anchors of absolute truth. Let it be a lesson to you and I. I'm talking about as Bible believers, as Christians to not buy in to the moral relativist culture and philosophy of the world. If we do so, we do so at our own destruction. The truth anchors us. Let me say number two, the truth adjusts us. The truth tells us when we are wrong. Now, if we just believe that truth is whatever we say it is, then your life can never change. The only thing that can change a person's life is truth. Because when we live and walk in error... Only truth can expose the error that we're living and walking in. Therefore, without absolute and objective truth and reality, there is no capacity for our lives to ever change. We will only and ever spiral downwards towards whatever angle we were bending in the first place. We will only ever slip, we'll never change without the truth. God reveals this to us in the book of James, chapter number 1. He says in verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. 
So in other words, James says this, when a fella goes to the Word of God and then doesn't obey the truth of it, they're like somebody that walks by a mirror, looks at themselves, and walks away without changing anything. But he says, if you'll look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, it'll change you. Truth changes us. More particularly, the truth of God's Word changes us. We need it because it adjusts us. I'm saying this, if you don't have a hold on objective reality, you'll go crazy. But if you don't have a hold on God's Word, it'll corrupt you. We need God's Word to adjust our life and our behavior. I want to give you a few final thoughts, and I'm done, about the public influence of the Word of God. And these are going to be very, very quick. Look at the end of verse 21. Solomon says, this is the reason that he's told him these things, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Now, Solomon knew what it was to be a king. Solomon knew what it was to be an arbiter of wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man in the world. And people would come from all over to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, the queen of Sheba came from many, many uh, leagues away so that she could hear the wisdom and, and learn the things that Solomon could teach her. And Solomon knew that Rehoboam, as his son, people would do the same thing with him. People would come from all over to learn the wisdom that Rehoboam had. And so Solomon says, the reason I'm writing to you is because truth and the truth of the Word of God has a potent and powerful effect on the world. And you have a responsibility, son, to carry that truth to the world. The first thing we need is the confidence in the source of truth. We need to believe that what we have is the Word of God. Now, again, that's not an abstract term. I don't just mean it has some of the words of God in it, but we don't really know what they are. Some of them are true, some of them are not. We can't really tell. We've got to go to commentaries to tell us. That's not what I believe. I believe that every word of this Bible is the Word of God and is perfect and exactly what it ought to be and what God intended it to be. I don't believe it needs my correction. I don't believe it needs my revision. I believe it's absolutely 100% correct. Now listen, if you want to fuss and argue about that, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I mean that sincerely. I'm happy to give you all of the reasons that I believe that. But before we go down that road, can I just ask you this? If you don't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God, which Bible do you believe is the Word of God? Or is it really not that you have a problem with the idea that God's Word is the King James Bible? Could it be that you have a problem with the idea that God's Word is perfect and that it's in existence in the world that we live in? Now, I've never met anybody that said the King James Bible has errors, but the NIV is the Word of God. I've never heard anybody that said that. So we can go down that road and we can talk about all the reasons. Listen, I can talk about the text. I can talk about the 54 men that translated the King James Bible. I can talk about uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, the two corrupt texts upon which the vast majority of new versions were based upon. We can talk about dynamic equivalency. We can talk about literal translation. We can talk about all those things, and I'm happy to do it. But before we spend time doing that, you need to ask yourself this. The question is not, what is the Bible? The question is, is there a perfect Bible? If we believe there is a perfect Bible, then everybody can agree it couldn't be anything other than the King James Bible. So that becomes the question. So before we even go down that road, and I'm happy to do that with you. I mean that sincerely. I'm happy to do that with you. But you first have to ask yourself if you even really believe there's a perfect Bible in this world. Because that's a matter of preservation, not a matter of inspiration. So... We have to have confidence that what we, can what we have is the truth of the Word of God. Number two, I want you to consider our calling as the stewards of truth. Uh, we have our confidence in the source of truth, but our calling is the stewards of truth. People were going to come to Rehoboam because he, he had the truth. He possessed the truth. And understand that if the world can't come to us for truth, 
The world can't go anywhere for truth. We are salt. We are light. If the salt has lost its savor, it's fit for nothing but to be trodden underfoot. If the light is hid under a bushel, then it's fit for nothing. We've got to be set on a hill. We have a responsibility. We are not the arbiters of truth, but we are the stewards of truth. Anybody can come and learn truth. They don't have to come to a local church to find out the truth, the Word of God. But most of the time they will. Because we are the stewards of it. And so we are tasked. We have a responsibility. If we don't know where God's Word is, why do we expect the world to know where God's Word is? And if we don't believe God's Word is perfect and absolute, why would we expect the world to believe that God's Word is perfect and absolute? We are the stewards of God's Word. And then I want you to consider our commission to the seekers of truth. He says, Rehoboam, there's going to be people come from all over the world. You know why? Because people have questions that they need answers to. And they're going to come to you because they are seeking the truth. It's easy sometimes to see an enemy around every corner. Sometimes I fear, you know, you've heard the old saying that when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And sometimes we live in a society where we've been surrounded by nails for so long that that's all we've learned to see. And there's a danger sometimes that we come up to somebody and, uh, you know, listen, there's somebody that wants truth and they seek truth. And the first thing we do is jump to beat them over the head, to try to uh, beat them into submission about all of these principles and truths. We need to have the right attitude. We need to have the right spirit. We need to stand with boldness on it. But you know what i found? You'll get far better if you'll not waste your time that people, with people that aren't interested in truth and instead seek those that are interested in truth. There are people that are looking for answers. We, we're awful down on young people. And it's easy to be that way, right? Because they don't pay any bills, so you don't care if you make them mad. It's easy to be down on young people. But the reality is this. So many young people today, they're looking for truth. They're looking to you and I for somebody to tell them what is true. They've grown up in a culture that's told them there is no truth. And then they get in the world and they think, well, that's dumb. The whole world is, is full of absolutes. If they absolutely don't get, go to work, they absolutely won't get paid. doesn't matter what their political science professor says. doesn't matter what the philosophy books say. They live in a world of concrete reality. And they scratch their head and they say, where's truth in all this? And that's where we need to be standing to say, can I share with you what is true? Can I share with you the source and the scope of absolute truth? Don't waste your time arguing with people that don't want what you have in the first place. Instead, spend your time reaching out to people that are desiring truth and in love and compassion share that truth with them. Hey, listen, all that hard preaching that we did tonight... I wasn't preaching to those people looking for truth. I was preaching to those of us that have the truth already. Uh, Our perspective towards a lost and dying world ought to be this. Let me take you to Calvary. Let me show you truth hung on a cross. Let me take you to an empty tomb and let me show you truth risen victorious. Let me take you to the Word of God and show you truth reaching His hand out in love and compassion to you. And we ought to be willing to seek Others that are seeking truth. We ought to be willing to guide people into all truth. You know, that's what the Holy Ghost does. He guides us into all truth. Don't it kind of make sense if He guides us into all truth? Then if we yield to Him, He'd use us to guide others into truth. We have a commission. 
to be the stewards of the Word of God, of the truth of God, and to be carrying it forth to a lost and dying world.